Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Standard Age podcast, a casual conversation about the lives of entrepreneurs and those growing companies. This podcast has been a wonderful supplement to my apparel brand, Standard H, which serves up elevated casual automotive and travel-inspired apparel and accessories to you discerning car and watch lovers. It's been a blast recording these episodes, and if you like what you hear, please visit standard-h.com and sign up for our email list. Our recently revamped website not only hosts every episode of this show, but also allows you to explore the entire product assortment and our latest travel recommendations. As an email subscriber, you will then receive offers no one else is privy to, and I can promise it'll be well worth your while. Just hit pause real quick and hop over to standard-h.com to sign up. We'll be here waiting for you to hit play when you return. Watch collecting is often described as a journey, and along these roads of exploration, you may encounter independently owned brands you've never heard of creating some of the most incredible timepieces. If you're in search of these brands, look no further than Passion Fine Jewelry, owned by former Standard Age podcast guest Tim Jackson. Offering incredible timepieces as well as phenomenal customer service, Passion Fine Jewelry is California's largest independent watch dealer located right here in Solana Beach, just north of San Diego. There you will find Roger Smith, Gronfeld, Kudoke, Habring, Sarpaneva, Roman Gauthier, and many more. If you can't make it to California, visit passionfinejewelry.com for their entire offering online. This episode is also brought to you by Contonement. Contonement's flagship product, the Kerchief, is a perfect medium between a handkerchief and a bandana. Featuring iconic designs such as a Fender Stratocaster and the dashboard of a Volkswagen GTI, these utilitarian cloths are an item that should be a mainstay in your everyday carry. Tuck one in a back pocket or use one as a neckerchief. Visit them at Contonement Co. That's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T dot co and use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off their entire online shop. Now let's get to the show. Adam Moore and I met several years ago during my first visit to Analog Shift when they were still in their WeWork space. I didn't realize we hadn't seen one another since until we connected for this podcast. Strange how time flies. Adam and I are of a similar age, so naturally we share a lot of the same memories of growing up as teenagers in the 90s. We both devoted a ton of time and energy to the early days of mountain biking, as well as shared an affinity for bands like Metallica. Today, Adam is a professional photographer, primarily acting as a freelancer for watch brands and companies within the watch industry. He's gained quite the following and admiration due to his incredible macro photography of some of the most sought-after timepieces many of us adore. I certainly encourage you to check out Adam's work as he often partners with the likes of Vacheron, Grand Seiko, and a couple of former brands hosted right here in Autodromo and Brew Watches. However, alongside the stills of close-up content, Adam also shoots video and gives us a wonderful explanation why. This was a fun conversation as Adam takes us down the road of how he grew his appreciation for the medium of photography and walks us through his approach to some of his more abstract horological art pieces. We wrap things up, of course, with some car talk, and Adam shared stories of his latest acquisition featuring its own Instagram account, so stay tuned for that. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Thanks so much for doing this, man. You got uh, it. 
I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, Adam with a T. A-T-O-M. I hope this isn't a trigger. (laughs) How did it come about? Are are mom and dad scientists? Uh, So I like to tell people that my parents were scientists and they, and they look at me with a, a, you know, wide eyed, like, Oh really? And I'm like, (laughs) and the, and the real story is not quite as exciting. Uh, you know, in in high school, when I started doing photography, I started signing my prints ATOM instead of my actual name ADAM and it just stuck and it kind of became like my life patch, right? It became your stage name. Yeah. It's my stage name. It became the, the, like the thing that I was known, known as, but is like, you know, I can tell people on the street, like, oh, yeah, my parents were scientists. Right, right, right. So where did you grow up, though? I grew up in Massachusetts. Okay. Um, I, I lived in New England for my formative years and uh, I, near Worcester, uh, about 30 miles west of Boston, uh, which is... Be, growing up in New England is actually great because uh, a friend of mine got me into mountain biking Sweet. at a pretty early age, Yeah. right at the beginning of high school. What and, was the first bike? Uh, the first bike was a uh, it was a Huffy. You know, it had like the it looked it wanted to be a motorcycle, it wanted to be a motocross bike, <laughs> but it was you know it was definitely not. And I think I, my parents got it for me at like Toys R Us. Right, it was awesome. Um, oh, the R.I.P. Toys R Us. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, I used to, you know Toys R Us. You go in there and you just be like walk around. You didn't have to buy anything. It was just like. And that's exactly what I did because my mom would never let me buy anything. <laughs> so I, I know the exact thing you're describing. Go to the video game section and you pick up the little, little like at the time you'd pick up the little piece of paper, right? And like you just walk around and be like, "Do I?" And you'd have like five of them. And you're like, "Which one do I want? <laughs> which which Nintendo game do I want?" Right. Yeah. Totally. Um, but after the Huffy, I graduated to a, a GT Timberline FS, which had a, a RockShox Quadra Five elastomer sprung suspension fork on the front of that thing yes yeah, super new oh. days of of rock shocks it was awful it was like it was a rock and that's the tri-triangle frame <laughs> yep yep and and then from there i i eventually um bought a 1200 dollars trek uh i think it was a 9500 i could be wrong on the number but it was an aluminum bonded frame um i had a 7000 okay a trek 7000 oh, sorry, which was, it was aluminum it was an 8500 Okay, because yeah. it was the top of the line of the seven thousand Quadra twenty one R fork. So I had the first year of the the um, Shimano XT that had the um, oh, the V brakes. The first yep. year of the V brakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I want to say was ninety six. I was gonna say ninety five, ninety six. Um, and it had a, a Manitou Mach five SX fork. On oh, it. so it had the Manitou. That oh, was yeah. like the blue and black one. No, it, no, it was uh, it was the it was black with yellow. Uh, stickers on it. Oh, that's awesome. We'll we'll talk more bikes <laughs> later for sure. Oh, I'm super. I'm a super bike nerd, and that's like that's probably why I got into photography so much was because I was in mechanical things like bicycles, and I would do my own mechanical work on them. Right. And so then when I started doing photography in high school, it was all of course on film. Right. And you know, here's a Pentax K1000. Like, go have fun. You know, like. It's all mechanical. You have to use a light meter to figure out what you're doing. Let's talk about who Adam was in high school. Okay. What was coming through the speakers? Okay. So I was definitely blasting uh, Metallica through the speakers of my my Ford Escort wagon. Oh, rad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) 
So what year was the car though? Because it wasn't new. No, it was like 94. <laughs> I was going to say. It was, it was like a hand-me-down oh, from so, my dad. Yeah, but that's pretty new. My though. brother and I shared it. So you actually had a pretty new one. Uh, like for the for the year. I guess so. Well, it was like... You nine, weren't driving like an 84. No, 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 no. And, and I never, I was never really into cars when I was younger. Right. Although there was like a, a parked at the end of my street, there was a guy selling a, a late 70s Monte Carlo. It was like sitting in his front yard the whole time, like for sale for right. my entire high school days. And when I got, it. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, I, I, you know, when I later in high school, when I had a job long enough and I was like, okay, maybe I'll go buy that car. Cause it's literally been for sale since I've ever moved no into this house. No one is buying this car. <laughs> and, and my dad was like, yeah, but you know how much, what the gas mileage is on that thing? And I, you know, at the time that really mattered to me because like, you know, money was, it was like gas money was a thing. Yeah. And I was like, oh, he's probably right. But uh, a friend of mine actually went and looked at it one time and the whole frame was rotted out. So it was probably a good thing I never, Yeah, he didn't buy it either. Just, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> but I loved it. I loved the shape of it. It was like, it was a little like, like a narrower, it was wider at the front with like a narrower grill than the, the 80s stuff. And it was just like. For whatever reason, I, I loved the look of it. It was really nice. It was it was like it was gray. It was like sleeper gray. Right. I feel like so many of us, and I'm sure kids are like this today, where they're like zeroing in on a car they know is for sale, and they're just so excited about driving that they'll like think everything is cool. <laughs> and like I was definitely that kid because like my my brother who's four years older, he had this friend Amanda, and she was selling her like ratty old Mustang and like I'm not like a Mustang guy but this car was for sale yeah <laughs> and and I was turning 16 very soon uh -huh. so I was like dad like please can we like buy this car it's like not that expensive and he's basically just alluding to the fact of like yeah there's a good reason why it's not expensive yeah like, uh -huh. I'm not buying you this car yeah <laughs> forget it, about it it's gonna explode yeah. I, you're not buying this car <laughs> yeah um so go back to music though. I was so my brother and I would would sit in our living room, listen to Metallica on tape, and play board games like uh, Hero Quest, and you know it was it was awesome. My brother was super into board games. You know we had magic cards and we did all that kind of awesome stuff in Got high school. It. Is and he older or younger? He's older. He's cool. he's sixteen months older. So not oh so close. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Did you play any instrument? Nope. Never. Nope. Never like the recorder or anything. Nope. Like that. No instruments <laughs> for me. That's uh, interesting. But you, okay. So you got into photography though. But I got into photography and I would go and photograph bands. So like I would go to shows in Worcester and I would, you know, at the Palladium and I'd photograph bands there and became friends with a bunch of bands and stuff. And so I'd follow them around and hang out with them. Any bands we'd know? No, I don't think they're around anymore. But like, um, you know, a bunch of hardcore bands and, rock bands so what was the first camera so the first camera that i really i owned myself was a, a one of the early eos um canons yeah. but in in high school it was either a, a pentax or i want to say a canon fd mount like you know fully manual but that was like handed to me from at the you know in the class okay so you took a class in high school yep yeah so i, I <laughs> my parents were like what do you want to be when you grow up, Adam? And I'm like, I've got, I got nothing. I don't know. <laughs> and I, I decided to take a photography class. I think it was junior, uh, no, sophomore year. And from then on, I was like, 
oh, this is awesome. I love being in the dark room and focusing on this and like, you know, printing my own stuff. And it's, it's a, a really an art form. It's, 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 I found later in life, it, it became very therapeutic for me to be in the dark room. It's just like, sure. You know, you, it's, there's a regimented thing. You're using the chemicals. It's like you're creating the art from this piece of paper that is photosensitive and, you know, light sensitive. And it's, it's, it, it's become a, it's like a, a ritualistic, um, what's the term? Uh, like meditative thing. For me. I was just about to say yeah. it's very meditative mm-hmm. because, you know, obviously there's process, but more importantly, like you have to focus and be in the moment. Yeah. And, you know, later on in life, uh, you know, about like six or seven years ago, I figured out that I had ADHD, but only as an adult did I figure that out. Right. So uh, looking back at it now in, in high school, that was definitely like a thing that I could hyper focus on. And it was like, oh, okay, I get it now. Like why I really enjoyed that, why it was meditative for me, because I could like, I could fully focus on it. And it was also giving me an artistic, like creative boost. That's interesting. What led you to, I don't know, being tested for ADHD? Um, so, it, you know, it was just like, a, a, I was having, I felt what I felt like was memory issues. And really it was like inattention issues. Like I was, because I was an undiagnosed ADHD person. Like, I don't know if you know much about ADHD, but like essentially your, your brain can't focus on, can't multitask. It can't focus on two things at once and it will automatically switch to another thing without you meaning it to. So like you and I are talking right now, but if like, you know, we heard a, a refrigerator turn on or something like that, my brain would listen to that and and wouldn't pay attention Kinda to what, zone what's in front of me. Yeah. It wouldn't zone out. It would just like, I could only focus on one thing at a time, but I don't get to choose which thing that is that I'm focusing on. So, so that's why, you know, eventually I sort of like realized that and, uh, got, I went to ADHD uh, therapy, so to speak, and right. figured out for myself what that meant. And I'm on medication now and it's, it's much better. I can, I can focus much better. So that's interesting. You said you had memory problems, but it's because you weren't actually experiencing what you should have Correct. thought you should remember. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, that's crazy. So where did you end up going to college? Do you have a fine arts degree? I don't have a fine arts degree. I went to a, a state school in Massachusetts. I went to Fitchburg State College, which is now Fitchburg State University. Okay. And I went there specifically because uh, when I was looking for colleges, I was, I was looking at like, there was a couple art schools Obviously, you know, Massachusetts, Boston area is known for its art schools. Um, but I'm not an artist traditionally. Like, I'm a photographer, but I'm not a painter or a, I don't draw. Right. Like, so I was like, okay, I could go to, um, you know, a photography-specific school in Boston. But I found this program at Fitchburg State where I didn't have to pay a crazy amount of money every year because it was a state school and I, I lived in state. And it was like the person who was running that program was a fine artist. And also the promise of being able to use a Hasselblad in year two, as opposed to waiting until like mid junior year to even touch one of those was like, Oh, okay. I like oh, this idea. That's really interesting. Cause I had um, Tim Hogan on, which if you haven't heard the episode, you should listen to it. Cause there's some parallels here and he's for a while i think he still is is a hasselblad ambassador Mm, mm -hmm. but he got to play with those level of cameras very early on yeah so i went to fitchburg state where i was my my professor was peter layton 
and he was um, a student of Minor White. Okay. Um, Minor White uh, is a contemporary of Ansel Adams. So like, uh, uh, right. You know, black and white, black and white photography. Um, but the the thing about going to that particular school, I you know, post graduation, I always considered uh, Peter to be a mentor of mine because during college he was very much like uh encouraging of the artistic side of things and and like our critiques were always very in-depth and very very interesting and he he didn't mind subject matters of all different kinds didn't matter what the subject matter was it was it wasn't about that it was about why did you take this photo why did you print it this way you know this could be improved you know, that could be improved or, you know, he, he was always a big proponent of you never print a negative the exact way you took it. When you're in the dark room, you're always going to manipulate it some way, you know, and manipulation in the dark room is, is what you can do in Photoshop today, right? Like say it's early days of Photoshop. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's analog Photoshop. It's, you know, dodging and burning is a thing that you learn to do in an artistic way, you know, you literally cut out shapes and like hold them over the, the images. It's as the, you know, as you're printing. Right. And you to know, darken an area to darken or, or, lighten area. or lighten an area, another yeah. area. And you know, I really, I really enjoyed that. It, it was like, it was a very positive experience for me to, to learn and grow my artistic photography skills in college. And then, but, but unfortunately I, I learned very little about the business of right. photography there sure. um, because because Peter was very much a, a person who is um, focused on the artistic side of things right and fortunately uh, when I at the end of my school I had to do an internship in the last semester and I did it here in New York City and with a, a, a photographer um, who helped me with the business stuff it was like he was an early proponent of digital um, working with digital and that was like in, in 2005. And you were a digital tech. What the heck is that? So a, a digital tech is the, the person who runs the computer at a, in a photo shoot. Right. Kind of like an assistant to the photographer in I that, um, you know, in a, a professional studio setting, you have the photographer and their camera. The digital camera is connected via cable. Firewire 400 in these days, right? Um, directly to the computer, and as they shoot, the images come in on the screen, so you can review them. You can see if it's in focus, and you also have to catalog them, because you know when you're doing a, a, a job of like let's say shooting for J Crew, and you have you know 50 different looks in a day, you need to know the skew of that and all that, and then you have, it's it's very much like a a very in depth job, and also if the camera stops working. Um, and that does, that time it was I worked with a lot of digital backs on on like medium format cameras, mm-hmm. and so you had to know how to fix that. <laughs> so well, let me ask you this because like, are you cataloging in real time? Um, so at the time that I started doing it in like two thousand five, six, seven, mm-hmm. the the amount of time that it took to bring a twenty five megapixel file over a FireWire four hundred cable right. into the computer. They were away. They were like three shots ahead of you. Okay, that's why I was asking because, like, the time sensitivity of taking said photos, right? Like, if you're firing off a thousand photos that day, 
or you know 500 photos that day but it was the early days of digital so people were like people who worked on those shoots weren't expecting things like they're expecting them today right like they weren't expecting someone to shoot you know 200 frames for you know this this clothing shoot in for this one outfit and be able to like see it almost instantaneously like it was just it was everything was a little bit slower well that's what i'm saying because like you would need the time to catalog it and that would then yep slow the process down for them otherwise oh yeah it sounds like everything was kind of not a snail's pace but like by today's standards a snail's pace sure yeah yeah um but it was great because uh I, I realized that I didn't want to work in the fashion industry in New York City is <laughs> <laughs> okay. what came out of, of my early days of, of assisting in digital, digital teching. Now, was that like a vibe thing or was that like a the actual product you weren't passionate about? No, well, I mean, I suppose later on I, I, I became a little bit more passionate about style and, and fashion. But it, at the time, it was more like the, the culture of of like New York City fashion photography was just like, it wasn't my jam. Right. You know, so. Right. So you were an early, let's get into some watch talk. You were an early yep. kind of attendee of Red Bar. Yeah. So, so what, tell me about those early days of, of meeting up with those guys. I mean, obviously uh-huh. James and I are, are friends and, mm-hmm. um, you know, you've got another Adam, right? Craniotis. Adam Craniotis, yeah. Um, what, yeah, like how did you get involved and how did you discover them or vice versa? Um, my... Um, my my wife at the time, uh, Kathleen, we're we're now broken up. We have been for a couple of years now, but uh, we, she used to work with Adam, Craniotis in the '90s in a tech company. Okay, and we saw the Instagram post he was making of like, you know, dudes in a dark bar hunched over a table like with these terrible photos of watches, and we were like, we're like, what the heck is that? What are you doing? And he's like, oh, you should come out. And we're like, we have swatches and like some Movados. And he's like, no, 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 come out. Bring your swatches. It's fine. And bring your camera. <laughs> and we're like, what? Bring the swatches? You know, and he's like, yeah, 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 it's fine. And we're like, aren't people going to like who buy expensive watches going to be like really turned off, turned off by the fact that we have swatches? And he's like, just to show up. So we did. And I think one of the first times out, we brought like 10 or 20 swatches with us. And the the literally like one of the first experiences when I sat down and put the watches on the table, um, this woman who is a, 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 a paddock dealer here in New York had a, you know, like a, a perpetual calendar with like diamonds on it. And she went, cool. I love swatches and like took her watch off, handed it to me and just started playing with the, the swatches. No. Oh, it wasn't Kelly. Um, I was like, I can totally see her saying that. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't think Kelly was was in Red Bar at the time. Uh, so it was like uh, that. Immediately was like, oh, these watch collector people are 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 chill. Like they're they. It's not about you know having the most expensive thing or or like showing up and be like, I have the biggest goldest Rolex. How are you? Right. It's you know, about the watches. It's about the watches. So started going regularly and in, in New York at the time we were, it, and this was probably like seven or eight years ago now. Um, like they were meeting basically every week. Wow. Um, so uh, Kathleen and I really started going all the time and, and she got more involved in the company aspect of it. And Adam and, uh, and Kathleen and James helps help make red bar, into a company. And that the reason for that was because 
they needed to because there was a bunch of chapters popping up. Sure. And people were like just making, you know, Red Bar Seattle or whatever would like pop up and but we're like, wait, do we do you know about that, Adam? Like, <laughs> you know right. who, who's right. running that? And so we had to sort of like rein it in, rein it in because, you know, it wasn't about trying to like take away the Red Bar name from people. It was more about like, let's have it all be under one umbrella and have everybody be connected. Um, and that was great. So, but the early on, I started bringing my camera and I hadn't really photographed a lot of watches. However, um, I was doing some work, some studio work, uh, still life photography work for a company called Gilt Group, um, yeah. G-I-L-T. Oh who man, was, I remember them. I was working in the Brooklyn Navy Yards in their studio and they were very prolific. They were pumping stuff out all the time. Right. And I had started photographing jewelry and watches for them. Mm-hmm. And I got good at jewelry, so they were they you know they had me in, in the jewelry room a lot photographing there, and I shot one of the early collections of watches that Gilt did with Ben Clymer, oh, okay, of this website called Hodinky, yeah. and I was like, what is this? I don't know what this is. So I looked it up, and I was like, oh, so I started following Hodinky and watch and reading Hodinky really early on, about the same time as I started going to Red Bar, so that was like you know, rabbit hole, right? full right. on rabbit hole. And from early on at Red Bar being, you know, sitting in, I'd, I'd take, I'd pick up some watches and I'd go in the corner and I'd bring my own lights and I'd, I'd like set up. And at the time I was using, um, Dito light, um, LED lights, just continuous lighting to, to photograph what I had. Sure. And over the time I, I started developing my process and I started using flash and I started bringing the, that in. So I'm the guy sitting over in the corner of the bar with little flashes going off, you know, and fortunately the place we were meeting was like, you know, downstairs at a bar in Koreatown and it was like, nobody cared, but right. Right. It was, it's from there. I met James Lambden from analog shift. And that was when he would just, you know, I think the company had been around maybe a year or so. Got it. Um, I'm not really sure actually, but it was early on in his company and, and, his partner, uh, Jake, was going on on vacation, and he's like, "Hey, I, I need somebody to come in for like a month and fill in." And he had met me at Red Bar and seen what I could do, and I did, and I was there for four years. <laughs> <laughs> and from from there, by the time I was done at Analog Shift, I was like really, I, I basically was only photographing watches for for, you know, as a, a business. Nice. So how did that? sort of role evolved for you there like it was almost kind of like off the cuff right like come in i need some help yeah so like what were you doing differently in year four that you weren't doing in day one um like well, how was the role did the role change much it did like it became it was just you know me as a, a hired gun photographer for a minute until you know we realized that like oh i i can i had ideas on how we could streamline the process because yep. uh, at the time there was very few people selling vintage watches online. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like, how do we build this into a thing that's a little bit better? Um, and for me, because I had come from a, a, a background of being a digital tech and working with, you know, professional photo shoots, I was like, okay, we need to streamline this in a way that like all of the images, all the, the watches need to look the same way on the front page on the page of watches and like they need to be in the same angle and they you know everything needs to have a consistency a look to it sure and you know it just sort of 
his business really James's business really picked up yeah and it was really successful at the time and and was like you know uh so by year four we had moved to our own space and out of the we work and we were like uh doing collaborations with a bunch of different people as far as like you know different uh watch stores around the country we were doing like pop-ups basically of vintage watches in, in there and different kinds of photography and, and from photographing all of the different so let's let's take uh speedmasters for instance sure over the course of four years i probably photographed i don't know like <laughs> dozens <Yeah>. dozens <laughs> of speedmasters right right and i would look at all of these speedmasters back to back and i could see all the different variations of them and that's when i started doing the the artistic stuff with the the mashup art that i was doing like i started doing um in like 2015 right which was around the end of when i was working with james i started doing that stuff based on seeing all the vintage models that were like the same version of the same watch but they were all they had different patina they had different look to them sure and because i was so you know adhd focused on the details of all that stuff it was like oh cool look at like look at this one's a dot over 90 bezel and this one you know look at the the hand shape on this one versus the one that was supposedly made the year before like right right so you were finding the things that made them distinct mm -hmm. right and mm -hmm. noticeably different and like this one has a tropical dial that's super cool or like somebody would show up and it's like this one's not for sale but like they'd have some you know a 29151 you know like a, a super early first version speedmaster it's like that stuff is special you yeah. know and knowing the stories behind all the watches and people would come in and like you know consign their collections with james and it would be like what's the story behind this watch yeah and yeah. that is that's where like okay there's history behind each individual watch from its owner but also the history of the brand and the story and the why the watch was made those are the meat hooks, man. Yeah. That's so what gets you in there. It's like there's so many angles and variations. Yeah. And then looking at the close-up details in, with my lens was really where I was like, oh, watches are awesome. Yeah. Like mechanical stuff is is super cool. And like, you know, knowing my background of, of mechanical bicycles and mechanical cameras, it's an easy leap to go to mechanical watches. Yeah, for sure. What were, uh, can you describe the pieces you shot that sort of got the attention of, you know, the likes of Tudor, for example? Yeah. So I, I, I photographed a bunch of, you know, one of the art pieces, the mashups I made yeah. was of Tudor Submariner, um, bezels. A lot of them were faded bezels, um, which of course, you know, even today is like super sought after to have like a faded bezel and like a, a specific color. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know Tudor has a, a the the very specific snowflake hand, right? And everybody loves that. So I took, I did a variation on the you know uh, this sort of abstract uh, piece with with the snowflake hand and the bezels intertwining and and there was no dials or, or other other hands on there at all. It didn't doesn't look like a watch, right? Um, it almost looks like a snowflake in a way, right? Um, and so I, I had made several of those images and I posted them on Instagram and people were, 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 you know, 
in the early heydays of Instagram when people, when you could actually gain followers right. by posting things. <laughs> yeah. um, and I went to a, a watch convention in, in London. I went to Salon QP um, with Red Bar and we were walking between, you know, appointments or whatever. Uh, and there was this guy stopped me in the hallway and he's like, Hey, um, I work for Tudor and I wanted to, to talk to you about, about something. Do you have, do you have time to talk to me? And for a minute I was like sort of panicking because I was like, what did I do wrong? <laughs> what did I do wrong that Tudor and Rolex have taken notice of me? Right. And, uh, turned out that he was like, Oh, I, I want to commission you to do a collection of your art specifically for Tudor. And I think it was like the, the second year of the black Bay was out. Okay. So like, yeah, 2014. Yep. And it was 20, it was 2015. Okay. Um, I think it was a winter of 2015 when I, or maybe it was 2016. In any case, uh, it was, so he was like, we, we, we struck a deal and, I went to Geneva to the Tudor headquarters, the Rolex headquarters. Unbelievable. And it was right before Basel world. So they, the watches hadn't been released and they couldn't, they couldn't like even go down the street to a studio. They had to do it there. Right. And so I went to like sub basement number five, which was uh, according to him, the, the lowest level that like any non Tudor employee had ever been to in the building. I was going to say, I've seen a YouTube video of like their <laughs> vault or whatever. And it's incredible. Looking. Yeah. So like I was in some windowless room in the basement and like in sub basement number five and I had these watches. They're just like, cool, have fun, you know, and like gave me the watches and like, let me go, go at it um, for a day or two. And it was, it was, from there we did a, a, I made a full collection of, I think I probably made like 10 different mashups and it ended up in like, so we did Hong a, Kong, right? Yeah. We did a, a, a sort of a one-off show of it in Hong Kong uh, and they chose the location and you know, it was, a, it was, it was fantastic. They, they made yeah. the prints there and they, they hung them up and it was, it was like a, that was sort of like the kickoff of like my artistic career. Now, before that I had had a, a show here in New York, um, at a gallery called Sacred Gallery inside of a tattoo shop down uh, by Canal Street. Cool. Um, a friend of mine was running the gallery there, and, and I had my first watch photography show there. And But from then on, and that, that show, that our original show, was, was half mashups and half just sort of macro shots. Cool. But from there, from the Tudor thing, it was like, oh, okay, I want to do... That thing. If I'm going to show something in the gallery, it's going to be... Uh, you know, it's going to be the sort of mashup, you know, brain dump of like unique looking stuff. That's not actually just a, a photo of a watch. Sure. What size are the prints? So the, the prints I was making were anywhere between 30 inches, 36 inches or 48 inches. I did make, end up making some. So these are like legit posters. Yeah. And they're, usually they're square and they're, they're printed on metal. Okay. So they're printed on aluminum with a dye sublimation process where uh, because they're on metal, my printer, which is here in Brooklyn, does a, a technique where they don't print the highlights and they let the aluminum come through. So if oh, something cool. is, is, you know, white, it'll be fully white. Silver. It's, it's really sort of like a silvery tone. Yeah. But for watches it makes total sense because if you have a highlight on a case, it, it's like the silver watch case coming through. So it's, it's kind of neat. That's really, really cool. Yeah. What, what's a quick rundown of your gear bag today? 
Uh, gear bag today. So uh, I really like. So for instance, I'm about to to go to Watches and Wonders, and do you know the show that has been postponed and um, used to be SIHH, but I Red Bar used to go to all of the conventions for the last several years, and I would go as the photographer. Sure. This year, I'm I'm going with Hodinky as a freelancer. Nice. And my my I've honed my gear really quickly. It's it's a small traveling a small camera suitcase. And I have a, a Leica CL. I have um, little, some little tiny flashes by a, a little China, Chinese company, um, Lightpix Labs. And I have like five of those. And they ha- it has a tiny little uh, transmitter that goes on top of the camera. So I can hold, I can put the flashes anywhere I need to. Are you using five flashes at once? No, 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 not okay. usually. I just, I have that many. You just have that many, right? Um, I usually use two, maybe three. Um, but then I have a, a collection of um, white and black cards, um, you know, for either bouncing for, or for bouncing. So yeah, I, yeah. you know, and I, I'll make a, a little book out of them. So I've got, you know, a, a little collection of cards and, you know, several batteries, several flashes and a camera and I'll have a backup camera just, you know, just in case. But so you're like a CL guy. I've been using the like CL at the conventions because it's light. Mm-hmm. it's an APS-C sensor so it, it's you know it's, I think it's 21 or 24 megapixels uh, which is plenty sure and um, it has a dedicated one-to-one macro lens which is the reason I wanted that camera now it's the same mount as the new SL and uh, SL2 and all and those cameras right which is now shared across several different platforms from different companies yep um, are you using the Summicron or Summilux uh, well uh, it's, it's actually a uh, it's it's neither because the the um, the macro lens is is a its own thing two point eight okay um, so I guess it would be a an uh, Elmerit I think is what they would call it okay so Summicron denotes f two and Summilux denotes f one one point four right right in in like a speak yeah 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 um so I do have a uh, a, a thirty five one point four Summilux for that system also yeah. Um, but because it's APS-C, it's actually more like a 50 millimeter lens. Don't you love all the, the, right, the numbers right. and, and right, the math, math that you have yeah. to do in your own head? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, I, I love that camera cause it's tiny and light. And like I, for a minute I brought my, I was bringing my Canon DSLR to the, the shows and it was just like, my wrists hurt. Why do my wrists? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a, the random question on the business side. Like you've worked alongside big and small brands. Mm-hmm. Um, how much biz development, you know, like biz dev stuff are you doing these days versus, you know, just fielding phone calls? Um, you know, cause you're kind of the macro guy, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I do, I do a fair amount of, of biz dev. It depends. Like I've got a couple of different sides. I've got, I've got my artistic side where I do art things. And sometimes I do collaborations with brands specifically on the art side of things. Uh, I just did something with Grand Seiko. Um, and other times I'll do, you know, s- sort of uh, what I might call straight photography as far as like, you know, it's not art, it's not mashup art, but it's, right. it's just simple photography of watches. Mm-hmm. Um, like I've worked with Vacheron fairly recently on, on a couple of things. What'd you shoot for Vacheron? Um, so Vacheron and I have a, a, a sort of an ongoing thing, um, that started right before the pandemic. We were 
I photographed a bunch of their watches and then made large metal prints of them and we were doing boutique events cool so I did a Miami boutique event and an LA event and then that was you know I think it was in 2019 and then things of course you know took a turn and uh, then again last year we did another LA event Uh, on Rodeo yep okay and that's a great crew there it is it really is yeah um uh, yeah uh, so and the watchmaker there is actually a red bar guy oh cool yeah I, I've just only met Kyung. Okay. And she's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for you Vacheron fans, visit Rodea and go see Kyung. <laughs> so, you know, early on when I started going to Red Bar, I didn't get what Vacheron was doing. I was just like, wait, why is that time-only watch $30,000? I just don't understand. Right, right, right. But when you when you look at it from a perspective not of like, oh my God, that's a really expensive watch. If you look at it of as a... That's an incredible watchmaking process. <laughs> this brand has a history. Yeah. And so there's something there. But then also the level of of respect that the watchmakers are giving the 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 world of creating timepieces mm-hmm. is you know, they are artisans. They're true artisans. And, you know, of course, that $30,000 watch is a platinum case. Sure. And, you know, those little details that you don't think about right. when you're just looking at the price. Right, right. Um, so they also, you know, they, they have heritage lines that have obviously now become much more. You know, there's the, the whole you know, integrated bracelet thing is like a, a world unto its own. But, you know, I, I, so, so I worked with Vacheron recently, but I also work with people like Bradley at Autodromo. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, I don't want to pigeonhole myself as like only a macro photographer for people like Vacheron. I want to, or Grant Seiko, I, I want to be able to work with everybody because I actually respect and like brands like Autodromo and Brew Watches. Right. Um, you know, both those brands are here in the New York area, but like those people are great. And from going to Red Bar, you meet these people and you're like, wow, you're actually, a, you're a person I want to hang out with. Right. Exactly. And then you're like, oh, oh, you have a watch brand too. Okay, cool. Like, you know, going to a Warren and Wounds wind up watch fairs, the early ones, and you, you meet these people who are, are extremely passionate about what they do. And just because they aren't a big watch brand because they're, but they're doing their own design. Bradley and 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 John from Brew Watches, they're mm-hmm. incredible designers of watches. They may not be a watchmaker. They may not be physically creating the product with their own hands. But their vision is just coming from a different place. But their vision is being transcribed by other people to to be what they want it to be. So that's it, that's kind of how I run Standard Age, right? Because yeah. like I'm not sewing shirts <laughs> you sure. know what i mean right but but yeah so i completely identify with that yeah and they couldn't be nicer people exactly you know both of them yeah jonathan's uh or john's episode is actually launching tuesday oh right on so cool. uh look forward to it he's picking me up tomorrow in his aston and we're gonna go for a drive <laughs> so yeah incredible guy <laughs> yeah he joined the aston club yep yeah um well you also shoot video from time to time i do yeah so the a few years ago, it was like, okay, every photographer needs to become a videographer. Yeah. And Is that because the camera's capability can achieve it? No, it's because it's what people are asking for. Okay. And it's, it's 
definitely like a few years ago, five years ago, it was like, oh, this is definitely the way that people are going to start, what people are going to start asking for commercially. Is that social media driven? Is it website driven? Is it email blast driven? It, is it all encompassing? I think it's all encompassing, but it's definitely a social media thing. Like sure. you want to see the watch, but also I understand as a watch collector myself that like seeing a still photo of a watch can give you an idea of what it is, but seeing, for instance, a Grand Seiko like I have here today, it, it, when you when you see it move, mm-hmm. you understand a lot more than you do from seeing the still photo. Sure. But it's very difficult in a video to make the watch look like your still photo as far as the, the reflections and that kind of thing. Right. So being a, a macro photographer, I've taught myself now how to be a video editor. And I've, you know, I've listened to s- several podcasts lately about photography and video stuff. And it's like, it, it's much more difficult to teach yourself a, a video editing program than it is to be a Photoshop proficient in Photoshop. Yeah. I've that's, you know, I've always wanted to video these conversations mm-hmm. and I'm like, I edit them. If I introduce <laughs> video, that's one more editing thing I need to learn. Certainly. And it seems like a daunting task. Yeah. Frankly. Um, you know, it's interesting. You were talking about like things appearing different in person versus in photos. Mm-hmm. I was at along in Zona yesterday. Uh huh. And we were discussing how there's a lot of times you'll see a watch in person and you're like, wow, this is so much better than it is in the photos. But then there are other brands that you look at the photos and you're like, wow, these photos are incredible. And I was actually like let down in person. (laughs) If an ALS is better in person than it is in photos, like what... So what do you think you need to achieve in a photo to to not make that happen so that it's more on a level playing field? You know, it's it, what kind of photos are you talking about? You're talking about like people posting photos, photos of it, website photos. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some of the brands are want their watches to look a certain way in their in their website photos that is almost what seems like impossible. I'm not saying you know, I, I'm not saying Longa is doing this necessarily. But yeah, like, yeah. No, this is not to call out Longa. Because that's like an incredible brand. <laughs> sure. But in general, some brands, and I don't know who this is at the brands who are, who are you know, leading this, but right. the watches almost look like renders. I see. Now, oftentimes, before a watch is launched, they'll, they will do renders, and a lot of video stuff is actually renders of the watch the flyover, a lot of the flyovers that you see where the watch like comes apart and like, right. Perspective, that's course. all it has to be digital. It has to be digital. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, the, the renders are so good now that you can almost use a render as a photo of a watch. So do you think this is by design? But I think that the lighting and the retouching that some of the brands do makes the watch look, you know, it's sitting in a black void on their website and you have no idea how big it is or what the light is going to look like when it reflects off of it. Fair. And I can understand why you would want your watch to look 100% 100 perfect in the way that your the brand's mind's eye sees it. Mm. I get that. Mm-hmm. But as a as a collector, as somebody who's who sees what people are asking for when you go to a watch event, they're like, I, I really don't know. I have any idea what that watch actually looks like right. or what it is. So in my photography, I sort of tried to go in a direction of lighting watches, even in my studio photography of like, you know, on white backgrounds or black backgrounds of watches that 
so you can understand a little bit more of what it actually is. Sure. Some brands really like that, and some brands are are think that's you know it's too rough of a look. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, since you're so close to those details, mm-hmm. both literally and figuratively, I guess. Who who's who's who are some of the call outs like the the favorites and like what are you loving these days, especially as of late? Um, one of the one of the things that I've one of the brands I'm close to that I, I've I've seen uh, a lot of their stuff recently is is um or the innovations that they're doing are is Moritz Grossmann, okay, in Glashütte. Yep. Um, they have this this uh bumper wind automatic so to speak it's i'm sure you know that's that's simplifying it but they have this automatic movement called the hammatic that essentially is a bumper wind it's like a a, it doesn't have a rotor that goes all the way around it has an oscillating weight that goes back and forth so the ham is like a hammer is that kind of i believe that's that's the designation for it yeah and you know it's it's much more elegant and well designed than the early bumper wind automatic movements that were, you know, in like JLCs or whatever. But right, right. it, you know, th- seeing that kind of innovation, they could have easily just done an automatic movement with a rotor or you know, peripheral rotor or whatever. Right. But I really I like th- that the innovation in that brand is is something that I don't think it's talked about enough. They've done a lot of really interesting stuff. Um, just minute little tiny things in the movements that you don't really think about or see. But I think they're almost like a, they're they're a very German brand, and they're they're they don't necessarily yell from the rooftops the way that that they probably could. I don't know if that's a German thing or not, but okay. Um, another one that I really got into lately is is Grand Seiko. I've really become. Um, I, I did just do some work with them, but bef- even before that, I was I was really drawn to their their watches, in the sense that they are very. Uh, whimsical about their design and and they're very purposeful about that so not only do they create extremely beautiful made watches you know they got the zeratsu like polishing that's like a mirror finish right right but the the playfulness with like their seasons watches for yeah, instance the color yeah the colors the the textures but it's not just that they have a beautiful watch that has colors and textures on it it's that they back it every single detail up with, we designed this watch with this color on the dial because of this particular part of spring that, you know, this, the light bounces off of, you know, the, the mountains this way or whatever, you know, in, in some part of Japan that they're very much Japan centric. Right. And in a way that's, you know, whimsical and poetic. And that grabs me a lot. You have a green one sitting on the table here. Yes. What what drew you to the green? Uh, this is this is one of the recent um, manual wind uh, limited editions that they did last year, and they came out with three different variations of a green color, which is you know everyone was doing a green watch last year. It's it's a little bit of a you know it was the trend. Yeah, I was going to say, you'll you'll never forget 2020 <laughs> or 2021, you know, that era, the green era. Right? When everyone was like, are you doing green? Yes, we're doing green. You're doing green? Yep. Okay, we're going to all do green together. Ready, guys? We're doing green. Now it's, you know, Tiffany blue. <laughs> and okay. and this almost has like some some like Tiffany bluish tones to it. Yeah, it's more of like light. A, yeah. It's more of a tealy kind of green. Mm-hmm. Um, but the it's it's really the texture 
on the dial. It's like extraordinarily you know, subtle texture. Yeah. Um, I have one more call out of a brand. Uh, there's a, there's an LA based brand called uh, Joshua Shapiro, JN Shapiro watches. And I've been fortunate enough to do some work with him recently. His engine turn. His engine turn stuff is, is really tremendous. It's, it's remarkable. Like and in the truest sense of the word. One of the things I see, especially with, with engine turn dials, is that when when you take super macro shots of it, you'll see these like little imperfections in the in the way that you know the metal is scraped by the, the machine that's making the, the pattern. And I actually really like that. Yeah. Not to say that it's it's imperfect in a way that like to the human eye you cannot see these, right. these small marks or whatever. But from a macro level, it's like macro wabi-sabi. <laughs> macro wabi-sabi, yeah. And, yeah. and like, I feel like he is doing something really interesting as far as traditional watch technique. But he's a young guy and he's, he's uh, an, you know, sort of a newcomer to the watch world. And I, I appreciate that he's doing these older techniques, but with a modern young person eye. I mean, young person, he's he's probably our age but like right sure you know and generally speaking a lot of the you know well-known watchmaker names are generally speaking uh, our parents age (laughs) or older so uh seeing his watches evolve over the last couple of years has been really interesting and i uh, he's also a very uh a very uh fine person yeah and and I'm, i'm glad to know him it's also um he's also working on on making a a U.S. made movement, cool. Um, and I know he's sort of talked about this a little bit. Uh, and I, I hope Joshua, I'm talking to you. Will you let me photograph that movement, please, when it's ready? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I've been in touch with him about getting him on the show, and I just need to circle back and and get him on, frankly, because mm-hmm. I'm in L.A. all the time, and would love to to check him out and bring him on the show for sure. Because I'm dying to talk to him. I love his work. It's his. It's it's, yeah. it's incredible. Um, you've mentioned textured dials. Do you have any sort of preference whatsoever as to the types of watches that are the most fun to shoot, be it a textured dial versus say like a perpetual calendar chronograph or something that's like super complex? You know, I've seen so many watches, uh, of all shapes and sizes and colors and, and styles and complications. I, 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 this remains true that Every watch that gets in front of my camera is my current favorite watch. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure each kind of bring their own thing. They do. And it's like, they could, it could just be a time-only piece and it could be extraordinarily simple. They could be trying to do nothing with it other than it being a watch that tells time. Mm -hmm. And I can find something interesting with it. You know, it's like, for me, that's, that's part of it is, is really like looking at each piece as what's cool about this what can i photograph about this whether even if it's just an angle of the lug underneath right that looks interesting it was thought out it was you know it's it's architectural design almost for it's architectural design it's mechanical design it's ergonomic design ergonomic design it's it's heritage of a heritage heritage design uh you know there's so many different aspects to it Mm -hmm. so it's like do i have a favorite no Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I think that's completely fair. It's probably an unfair question. Uh, <laughs> uh, what was your first car? 
Uh, my first car was a dark blue Ford Escort wagon that, okay. that was handed down from my dad. Got it. That was the first one. Yeah. Uh-huh. And my, my brother and I shared that. It was actually, uh, I think it was probably his car first. And then I see. I took it over. Um, but I, I loved it because it was a wagon. And I had gotten into mountain biking when I was young. So it was like, Heck I yeah. could literally just put the seats down in the back and shove my bike in there and I'm ready to go. I still do that. Um, <laughs> but I've, I've tried to continue the trend of having vehicles that have less than 90 horsepower. Um, my, my current car that I, I just bought during the pandemic as my project is a 1985 Volkswagen Vanagon Westphalia. Um, Toxie. Toxie the Avenger. Um, <laughs> And if, if you don't get the reference of, of Toxie, uh, it's the, the Toxic Avenger, which actually they're, they're making a, they're remaking that movie. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh yeah. It, it's like in the near future. It's, I think it's being made now. So it's green. It's dark green. Yep. It's sort of like an army green. Did you paint it or? Nope. nope okay, I got so it that way. Got it. Um, somebody had it repainted. It was originally brown. Um, which is a, a color that they made. Yeah, very popular for those, very, especially that oh, era. Yeah. You know, you everyone wants a poop brown. Right. You know, <laughs> actually, it was it was sort of like a dark. It was like a, it was like a burnt loaf of bread brown. That's yeah, that's a really good descriptor. <laughs> what? Well, uh, the vehicle is like a, a loaf of bread. Do you want to shout out the uh, Instagram handle for the van? Uh sure. It's it's uh, Toxie the Avenger. <laughs> okay, so that's yep. pretty pretty Toxie cut and dry. Yep. Um, I don't, I don't post a whole lot on there, but it, it's, it's, you know, the whole hashtag van life thing is just, right, so, it's right. like, it makes me cringe a little bit. So I had to have a little bit of fun with, with, uh, naming the van. So what drew you to the van again to begin with? You know, uh, a, a few years back, I, I took a trip with my, my now partner, Bria and I, and we went to, we went to Cape Cod and we, I, I rented a, a 70s bus cool and drove from Rhode Island to the tip of the Cape and back and because that vehicle only had like 60 horsepower you can't go fast you can't go on the highway right so you're you're forced to go on the side roads and see everything that's around you and so you know the whole trip was like what's over there let's go check it out yeah you know and you know you could of course it's you could sleep in the van and like, you know, it's like a, it's a house on wheels, but it's, it doesn't, it's tiny. It's small. It's like, it's no bigger than a, a pickup truck. So it's like, you can park in the parking lot. You can go on, you know, you don't have to worry about driving in a city with tight corners. So after driving that vehicle, I was like, okay, this is, this is kind of interesting. And I, I could see myself owning something like this one day. Yeah. But of course the, the, the early buses, the seventies buses have a bit of a, they're a bit much of a learning curve of, of how to work on a car mm-hmm. and they definitely need to be worked on a lot. So I, I took the creature comforts of having a water cooled engine and, you know, uh, working heater yeah, and <laughs> power steering <laughs> creature comforts. Yeah. Uh, of, of the 1985, uh, Vanigans. And, uh, so in, in a couple of years back, I started searching for one and eventually, it was during the pandemic and it was actually, it was difficult to find one locally that I could actually look at. And there, most of them are out in California or Oregon or, or somewhere, you know, on the West coast, sure, and Colorado. But there it's like, at the time it was like $2,000 to just to transport it across the country. 
that's the cost of a new engine. And <laughs> so I was like, okay, uh, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll look locally. And I eventually found this one in Brooklyn that had been transported here from California about four or five years ago. And it hadn't been driven much since then. And the guy loved it, but it was like he couldn't park it anymore because he lived in a spot of Brooklyn that he couldn't do that. Right. And it definitely needed some work when I first got it. This guy wasn't mechanical at all. And so I had, a, you know, I bought it and I had a little work done on it and just to make it drivable. But there's such a big community, like the watch community, there's such a big community around the Vanigans and, and the buses and all the, all VW stuff. But like, totally, there's a website called the Samba uh, that does, is essentially like the watch forums for Vanigans, right? Like right. if you could be broken down on the side of the road and you could make a post on there that says, help, this is my symptoms. And they would literally like, people would post in the middle of the night and like tell you what's wrong with your Yeah, brain. momentarily. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's such an aftermarket community, just like, you know, there's aftermarket straps for basically every watch. It's like, there's all these companies that are now still, you know, 35 years after my van was made, making parts making upgrades, making things that are, are cool right. for the van. So it, I can make it my own and I can like modify it and tinker with it and play with it. Yeah. Uh, and I love that. And, and I've also had to become my own mechanic. Right. Right. Cause, <laughs> cause you know, it's a, it's a 1.9 liter gas engine, uh, that maybe had 82 horsepower when it was brand new in 1985, maybe right, right. when it was new. Yeah. Uh, does it still have that? <laughs> but it still has a, a, it still has, you know, the original size engine for that van and it's like, it's going strong. Right. You know? Oh, that's awesome. Well, I know you've added like a couple racks and you know, the box on the back and stuff. We'll yep. have to post some photos and like yeah, you sure. said, the, uh, the Instagram handles so people can check it out. But uh-huh. do you, have you had to make any like suspension changes or anything like that as you add weight to the back like that? Like, so the uh, there's a company out in California called Go Westy that makes a lot of like extra spring kits and things like that for the van. So when I got it, it actually had it was slightly raised from its original height. I see. Um, so somebody had already done a couple of of like mods mods to it mm-hmm. and, and that were stuff I would have done myself. Um, but for me, like I my partner and I ride a, a tandem. Cool. And we can like I've got a rack and I can literally stick it on the back of the bike on the van so I can actually get it off because you know putting a the, the van itself is seven feet tall right so imagine putting a a 45 pound tandem onto the top of a seven foot tall thing right <laughs> yeah yeah um but you know like when I was a kid I had a, a station wagon and I could throw everything in the back so this thing is awesome because it's like it's almost like a reverse station wagon because the engine is in the rear. Right. Um, and now there are like four wheel drive models and everyone's always, always asks me for, there's two questions they ask me, do you live in that thing? Right. <laughs> um, and is it four wheel drive? Right. <laughs> and it's like the four wheel drive versions are awesome, but they need so much more work and, and they cost a lot more. Yeah. So. I was going to say they're significantly more expensive yeah. for sure. Well, do you have any particular trips planned up, up and coming? Um, Let's see. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, the Montreal F1 race. Oh, sweet! In I've, June, I went in 2011, uh, and I've never been to an F1 race. You're and my partner is a huge uh, Red Bull fan, so it's good timing. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, last year was fun. 
And so I was like, let's go to an F1 race. And Miami would have been cool to go to, but uh, we're so much closer. We can drive to to Montreal. And Montreal is so much cooler of a city. <laughs> I've never been, actually, so it's uh, going to be awesome. It's, it's amazing. I love it. And the track is interesting. You know, it's yep. kind of off on an island, I believe. It is. It's on an island. Um, we took the subway there, and it was unbelievable. Actually, when I went, I started in New York City. We took the train uh-huh. out of, I think, Penn Station, uh-huh. and we went all the way to Montreal. Well, it's essentially train. due north. Yeah, and it was it was incredible. Longest race ever recorded on record. Oh, interesting. It rained the entire time. That, that I have a whole other story about that, but <laughs> where I think it was Vettel passed Jensen Button or vice versa in the last corner on the last lap, oh, and man, we left awesome. early because it was raining. <laughs> it was raining. I mean, that's why it's what the are you longest. A, what are you, a Dodger fan? <clears throat> like, well, leaving in the seventh inning? No, no. It was one of those things where like it just we thought it was going to finish under caution. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. It, it had been under caution for laps and laps sure, and laps. Sure. So we're like, okay, well, this is the, the results are before us, you know, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. they're just going around at 60 miles an hour instead of 180, you know? So we're just kind of like, or 90 miles an hour or whatever. And so we left and we got to the bar and they're like, Oh my God, did you see the last lap? And we're like, <laughs> you're kidding me. So as mortified as I am telling this story now, I wouldn't have the story to tell. Right, I right. watched it really. Yeah. But yeah. They passed in the corner we were standing in all day, which is just insult to injury at this point. But <laughs> anyway, awesome. Uh, you'll you'll love Montreal. Incredible track. I, I love that race. Um, so before watches, though, you were collecting bike parts. So you know how in the watch world there's the independent brands? Of course. Like, you know, you've got your Sarpanevas and your Kaivutlinens and... You know, uh, your debutunes. Yep. For me, in high school, I I went to I started doing some bicycle racing, and I was never any good at it, and I I you know never never graduated beyond the beginner class. But right. I I began to to covet these super highly precisionly made aluminum billet parts. That yeah. a lot of which were made in the USA at the time in California. Mm-hmm. And like that started my, you know, collecting mentality. So all these bikes that I saw when I was a kid that I couldn't afford, when I moved to New York City as an adult, I would troll Craigslist and I would buy all these bikes that like were like, you know, I bought a Voodoo Bazango with XTR and a Judy SL from 1996 that this guy had brought here from wherever he moved from and couldn't store anymore and was like $300. Take it. I, I don't, I can't fit right, in my brain. Right. Get it out of here. So I, you know, I, I bought all sorts of like high end Bontragers and stuff like that from the, like all these 90 bikes that nineties bikes that I was like these from these small builders before they got eaten up by larger corporations. And I was like, it's like a treasure trove. I could, I can go out and find all these super awesome bikes. And so I started buying them. I'd, I'd buy them. I'd fix them up. I'd ride them. And then I'd flip them to a friend who could, you know, for what I paid for it. Yeah. Just because it was, it was fun to be able to ride all this cool stuff. Yeah, sure. And over the time, over the years, I, I, I ended up col- uh, with a large collection of bike stuff. Um, you know, uh, Paul components from, from California. Uh, I've got a lot of their hubs and cranks and uh, brake levers. 
Yeah. And I've got some some pretty high end stuff that's like fairly collectible now. And actually, I've I'm gonna I'm about to sell off a few of my high end pieces from like I've got a, an Ibis Titanium Mojo. Um, so that's where my titanium love started was was bikes. Wow. I love titanium watches, and the reason I do is because titanium as a material for bikes has always been like the top-notch thing for me. It's been my like most coveted thing because it's like when I was a kid, owning a titanium bike was like it, it was aspirational at, sure. at best. You know, yeah. it was like untouchable. Did you get into moots at all? Oh, yeah. I've never owned a moots, um, but... I, I've ha- I have a lot of their I have a few of their bars and several of their stems. Um, have you checked out Stinner? Uh huh. Uh huh. I had Aaron on the show. Okay, he's a lovely guy. I'll have to, and I'll as have to fate would him. have it, I just met his brother at a wedding in Phoenix three weeks ago. <laughs> like, had no idea they were related. Obviously, like just cool. small world type of thing. Uh, a few years back, I started going to the the, the North American Handmade Bike Shows, which oh, cool. they have in a different city every year. And there is just like you can, it's a convention of all the tiny builders that like you can just go in and, you know, talk to Ted Wojcik and you can, uh, you know, meet uh, Belinky and, do you know Belinky? No. So Belinky is a builder down in, in uh, Philadelphia. Okay. And I have one of their tandems. Uh, my partner Bria and I ride a Belinky tandem that we bought during the pandemic. Now, uh, tandem bikes are, are an interesting thing and i've really gotten into them lately and actually the reason i'm selling off some of my vintage kit is because i'm after a mountain bike tandem oh cool right now we've got a road tandem um which has sns couplers do you know what those are i don't so uh there's my brother-in-law builds tandems oh really for he and his wife he's built them oh cool but i know nothing about tandem okay, bikes. okay. So aside from my brother-in-law builds them so so and two people ride them quick high level tandem <laughs> thing you there's two people you have to you're connected uh via chains and you you literally have to pedal at the same time right exactly yeah so the captain is on the front the stoker's on the back and usually the person in the back is is doing a little bit more of the the heavy pedaling because they don't have to focus on on steering Mm. and but you have to pedal together and the person behind you can't see what's going on so you have to you have to shout commands at them to you know when you want to stop pedaling for instance because if i stop pedaling and the stoker doesn't then the cranks still move forward. Right, right, right. So you have to, it's a, a communication thing. Sure. Um, so we have a, a road tandem from Belinky and it's, it's, uh, it's got SNS couplers, which means that it has these, the frame is broken in certain spots and has these um, couplers that you can unscrew with a, a special tool and you can break it down. The reason you can do that is so you can put it in two bike boxes. So this, my brother-in-law built his bike like this, I okay. guess, because he travels with it. Yep. So it's it's a travel thing. And so normally, uh, you know, in times past, when people would travel with their bicycles and it wasn't a pandemic, you if you had a bike box, which is huge, you know, you an airline would charge you $350 to, to bring your bike with you. But if you could break it down into a small box, you could it wouldn't be a, a, lar- a large size thing and you could just check it with it's a suitcase a, a for suitcase. $30. Yeah. 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 So the tandem breaks down into two boxes and that way you can travel to wherever with it. That's and great. Just like with vintage watches that have stories, this particular Belinky that we have uh, has, you know, we know that it's been to New Zealand with a, a previous owner, the guy who originally built it, uh, who's not who I bought it from, but like, we know that the the bike has been around the world, right? So it's like that's cool. It's one of those cool stories. Is like, you know, it's it's a 
it's made from steel. It's it's handmade by by somebody who you know is a stone's throw away from us now, who I can still talk to. Who still you know I've I've contacted him about the bike, but now I'm after a mountain bike tandem, which is a whole nother scenario. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, dude, just wrapping up here, the beard is legendary. Thank you. What is the maintenance like? Um, so have you ever, have you ever had a beard? No. Okay. So imagine this, you have a thing over your front lip or your top lip that when you eat soup or, or anything like that, it, you know that it's too long when the food mainly gets stuck in the mustache. And right, not, right. Not, not, doesn't go into your mouth. Fair. Yeah. So that's, that's when I know that it's time to trim the mustache and that's about the majority of the maintenance that I do. So it's the soup test. <laughs> the soup test. Yeah. But, uh, you know, a lot of people put products in their beard. I, I, I generally don't. Right. You know, I just, I wash it like hair cause it's, I don't know if you know this, but it's hair. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's awesome. Adam, this was super fun. Yeah. Man. Thanks. Well, just so other people know, like where can they find you? Like, you know, buy your prints, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I've got a website, adammore.com, A-T-O-M-M-O-O-R-E. Moore is how you pronounce it. You spell that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I sell prints on there, but also you can see a lot of my photography on there. Also, my my handle on Instagram is at Adam Moore. Um, also, I I, I have a, a fun thing happening this year. I'm, I'm doing a... A collaboration with an independent, a yet-to-be-named independent watch brand okay. where I've designed a dial and, and they're making a watch. And, I think I read that recently. And it's going to be available at some point. What is most any detail you can give us? The case is going to be stainless steel. <laughs> All right. Okay. And that might be a big deal. All right, man. Well, let's chat soon. I like it. Okay. Hey guys, Wesley here. If you liked what you heard, maybe tell a friend about the Standard H podcast. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show as it helps others discover this podcast. Shout out to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track, as well as the clear audio for the noise canceling headphones. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care.